have similar problems. To with, place workers in Singapore yep, then. That have, you know, forced labor issues there as well. Sounds like it's a wide open. Lots of opportunity Lots of if opportunity. you can get in there. Yeah. Scott Stiles, good luck. Thanks for sharing this with us today. Thank you very much. Scott Stiles is a graduate of BYU Hawaii, a sister school, of course, to BYU here. Uh, he's uh, co-founder and general manager of the Fair Employment Agency, which places domestic help in Hong Kong in a more humane and sustainable way, as he's been describing to us. This is Top of Mind on BYU Radio. I'm Julie Rose. That's it for our show today. Tenery Taylor produces a show with help from Lauren Buchanan, Jesse Bruner, Whitney Gibbons, Esther Rady, Sage Smiley, Lauren Waddups, and Jacob Wisner. Reed Wolfley engineers the program. Find us on Twitter to chime in. We are at BYU Top. And you can find us online if you'd like to listen back or share a link to a conversation you enjoyed. We are at BYURadio.org slash top of mind. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. This has been a repeat broadcast of Top of Mind, recorded previously. Talk about good. BYU Radio. You happy, Don? I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I got all my blues out before you know, and and now today's... Last week was the blues. It was the blues, and we got all down and sad. We've got to bring out some sunshine. But today, come on, get happy. That's what we're doing today is, is songs that make us smile. That's, that's what it's happy about. Happy music. It's happy music. But it's, uh, you know, it's whatever kind of music makes you smile. Join Music Fanatics on Through the Garage Door weekdays at 12 a.m. Eastern on BYU Radio. Talk about good. Hi, this is Carla Huntsman. Fran Yardley. Joel Bandini. Kevin Cordy. Motoko. Charlie Playgolf. Dan Kidding. Carol Birch. Heather Forrest. Montonio Hosha. Join the world's best storytellers with tales that are funny, adventuresome, and thought-provoking with host Sam Payne on The Appleseed, a storyteller from Japan. In Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. From her hotel room in Louisiana. From West Virginia. Tiffany, Maine. Appleseed Stories and Tellers on BYU Radio weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. KBYU-FM, HD2, Provo. I'm Marianne Marshall with the BBC News. The contest to become leader of the governing Conservative Party and Prime Minister in Britain has taken a dramatic turn. The former London mayor, Boris Johnson, the most prominent figure in the campaign for Britain to leave the European Union, has ruled himself out of the race. The news follows the unexpected declaration by his fellow Leave campaigner, the Justice Secretary, Michael Gove, that he would stand for the post. Norman Smith reports. Boris Johnson began the day, still seen by many as the favourite to win. Now his long-held ambition to lead the Conservative Party would appear to be over. His campaign fatally undermined by the man who stood shoulder to shoulder with him throughout the Brexit campaign. It wasn't just Mr Gove's decision to stand that killed off Boris Johnson's hopes, it was the way he did it. Boris Johnson, he said in a statement, could not provide the leadership or build the team for the task ahead. There are five candidates in all for the Conservative Party leadership. The favourite is the Home Secretary, Theresa May. She backed the Remain side in the referendum and says she can unify the party after the divisions caused by last week's Brexit vote. Launching her campaign, she stressed that she wanted the world to know that Britain hadn't changed. I want to reassure foreign governments, international companies and foreign nationals living in Britain that we are the same outward-looking and globally-minded and big-thinking country we have always been. And we remain open for business and welcoming to foreign talent. Two suicide bombers have attacked a police convoy on the outskirts of the Afghan capital, Kabul, killing dozens of people. 
The Interior Ministry said most of the dead were police cadets returning from initial training in Vardak province. The Taliban say they carried out the bombings. Turkey says the three men who carried out a deadly suicide attack on Istanbul's main airport on Tuesday were foreigners. Thirteen people have been arrested in connection with the attack. Richard Galpin reports from Istanbul. Counter-terrorism officers and police special forces carried out a series of raids across Istanbul. Amongst those detained were several foreigners. Now an official who's not been named has said that the three men who carried out the attack were from Russia, Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. This will add weight to the belief that so-called Islamic State was behind the shootings and suicide bombings at the airport. At least 10 people have drowned after an inflatable boat carrying migrants capsized off the Libyan coast. Italian media said those who died were all women. The Italian Coast Guard said more than 100 migrants were rescued as the boat sank. The UN says more than 64,000 migrants and refugees have crossed the Mediterranean to Italy since the start of this year. You're listening to the latest world news from the BBC. A Palestinian has killed an Israeli teenager in her home in a Jewish settlement in the occupied West Bank. The 13-year-old girl, Halel Ariel, was in her bedroom in Kiryat Arba when a Palestinian teenager from a nearby village broke in. The Israeli military says he also injured a security guard before he was shot dead. The heads of three banks in Iran are to be replaced in the continuing fallout from a scandal over the high level of salaries paid to senior executives. The scandal erupted two months ago when the payslips of top government officials surfaced online. Sebastian Usher reports. It's not known how the payslips were leaked, but the backlash has been unambiguous with widespread anger at what many Iranians see as profligate government expenditure on the elite. The payslip showed some senior executives were earning up to 50 times more than the lowest government salary. The issue has dominated headlines in a country where ordinary people have been squeezed economically for years. The anticipated boost from the lifting of sanctions after the nuclear deal last year hasn't yet materialised. President Rouhani remains under huge pressure to deliver on that promise. The youth wing of China's Communist Party has released a rap song that attempts to boost the country's image overseas. The song, This Is China, blames the foreign media for creating misconceptions. It's the latest attempt by the authorities to restore the country's image by acknowledging national problems and explaining the government's solutions. A new international survey shows a majority of people hold largely negative views of China. The authorities in Nigeria's Lagos state have closed 70 churches and 20 mosques in an attempt to reduce high noise levels. Hotels, pubs and clubs have also been closed. The commercial capital, Lagos, is one of the fastest-growing cities in the world, with some estimates putting its current population at about 20 million. BBC News. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Man, what a great day, a busy day here at BYU Broadcasting. It's uh, BYU Football Media Day, and have we got a treat for you coming up. 
Uh, in just a few moments, we will have in studio with us uh, BYU football head coach Kalani Sataki and the athletic director Tom Homo. Holy cow! They're in here. One of the things we like talking about is leadership, and we've got two of the biggest leaders on campus right here in just a few moments. And we got a lot of questions to ask. Apparently, Kalani Sataki makes some pretty good food. Really? He used to have, he cooked for his family. Huh. Took care of his I, brothers. I don't even do that. I know. You do. You make a little bean thing in the afternoon, don't you? Don't you make always like well, a little taco that, that's, bean that's, meat? That's more like combining. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. all cooked. I, I don't necessarily cook it. Well, you microwave it. No. Well, yeah, I do. Yeah, there's some parts I microwave. So there, there's some yeah, intricacies to my just sort of tossing things together. It's all, it's all good. We gotta, um, we're going to have fun. I've got a lot of questions. What do you – I mean, like, I don't want to talk – I mean, everyone else here at BYU Broadcasting is going to be talking football with these guys. So yeah. I can hear all of those questions. I want answers to other things. I want to know most embarrassing moment Ooh. on earth. Yeah. I wonder if I'll ask him that. You should write that one down. I gotta write that Why down. didn't we think about that yesterday? I don't know. It's weird. Um, but but I, like everybody's got a really embarrassing moment. Yeah. And you never know if these guys want to tell it. Ben, he we, tops himself almost every no, day. It's amazing. Yeah. And the funny thing about a lot of Ben's most embarrassing moments, mm. he's never even told us about him. And we still were able to talk about him. <laughs> totally weird. It's also social media day. Yeah. So, you know, if you're into social media. Meh. Facebook, Google Plus, Q's on to Chinese must. Seen a Weibo form, Spring Havo is a teen thing. LinkedIn's a business gauge, Ren Ren's an Asian rage. Wow. Instagram I love songs like that. Here we go. What's he gonna do? This is Ben's band. Social media's here to stay. Yeah, we recorded it yesterday. So it's good. Is this you? No, no. Because it's on key. Is this like that? Yeah. Other song that uh-huh. we have? No, that I I love social media song. Yeah. yeah no, we're, we're gonna pull that up later too because that's a because that, that, that one was made at a social media like conference convention. Yeah. That yeah. one was kind of sad though. Yeah. No. Well, this one isn't much better. Well, I mean, I mean, it's you know, at least they're trying. Yeah. There's some this production one. value yeah. to it, but still, it's all yeah. it's all moving. <laughs> By the way, it's also leap second adjustment day. Yeah. Two times a year, you need to adjust for I guess. To keep time in sync with the atomic clock so you can leap forward or back, I guess. Do you leap back ever? Well, that was – You just hold still. There's a whole paragraph of information I left out because it's this whole nerdy sort of conversation. Yeah, tell us about it. Which day does the extra second go to? The day you're leaving or the day you're entering, which one gets the extra second? And apparently there's a real controversy over this. Alert nerd. Exactly. And there are people <laughs> who get into just really, really robust yeah. arguments. Yeah. Glad you left that out, though. Yeah, I just left that part out. I was just going to run right over it. <laughs> so you leap, you, you get a you get a make up a half a second if you're into that stuff. If you're not... Let it go. Relax. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Hey, um, we got all that going on, but first we got to get to the headlines, find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie Nielsen's with us. Sadie, welcome to the show, and what's going on around the country? Perfect. Thanks, Matt. So, Michael Stephen Sanford, a 20-year-old British man, was indicted on weapons charges on Wednesday for trying to steal a gun from a police officer during a Las Vegas rally uh, for Donald Trump. The indictment does not accuse Sanford of plotting to kill Trump, but at the time he stated that was his intention. 
Former Chicago Bears coach Mike Ditka has declined to appear at the Republican convention in July after Donald Trump's campaign was courting him along with other stars in the sports field. Ditka reportedly had a phone conversation with Trump on Wednesday, during which the two men shared mutual respect for each other. That's good. In the first North American Leaders Summit hosted in Canada in over a decade, President Obama... Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto underscored the importance of North American unity in their pledges to better fight climate change and emphasize free trade. Also, President Obama will finally hit the campaign trail with Hillary Clinton next Tuesday in Charlotte, North Carolina. The pair will appear in the battleground state for a discussion about building on the progress we've made, the Clinton campaign said. And finally, Mr. Burger, a burger chain restaurant based in Melbourne, Australia, announced anyone who formally changes their last name to Burger via the Australian government's official application will be granted free burgers for life once the restaurant receives an email with a copy of the name change confirmation. Wow. Yeah. Weird. So step one, get a passport, move to Australia. (laughs) Step two, get free burgers for life. Enjoy yourself. And life is good. And life is great. Step three, uh, bypass surgery. (laughs) Step four, we bury you six foot under. Thank you, Sadie. Well done. Uh, interesting news. Man, change your name to Burger. It's all it takes. Hey, um, you know, it's interesting with the headlines. I haven't, uh, I haven't heard a lot of, like, you know, upset about Donald Trump. So it, it, Donald apparently is, is just probably being a really good boy right now because you would think the way this goes, usually about every other day we have a major hiccup from the Trump campaign. It's midweek. He maybe took a, took a day. I maybe mean, he's he, tired. He did several interviews, but he didn't say anything controversial. No. And that's good. There were some probably events where he spoke to people. I, I think there's a lot of uh, fundraising going on, trying to organize. They've hired some more digital staff okay. to bolster to help their, uh, fun, you know, the, the email campaigns, the how do you find the people out there who are your supporters. They Apparently, the Trump campaign has, uh, you know, you go to these rallies, there's all these people. Oh, I know. But there hasn't been some considered effort to actually find out who these people are yeah. and somehow organize them. But, so they're trying to get ahead of that. But aren't a lot of these people the fans of Donald anyway? So, well, yeah. so, so he pulls in these big crowds, but a lot of these people love Donald. They do. It seems like Donald, because he's still, you know, on average seven or eight points down, it seems like. in the Yeah. Fox News put out a poll yesterday that, uh, what, Hillary had about a six-point lead? Yeah. So, so, and it was funny because there were some uh, some commentators on Fox that took that as uh, a blow to Hillary can- Hillary Clinton's campaign that she's not more further ahead. Yeah, she should be killing. And so her. the fact that Trump's six points back is actually a positive for him, right? Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't seem to feel that way. I mean, no. but again, there's still plenty of time to yeah. make up ground, and right, it's not like it's insurmountable. No, it's not. I mean. But I enjoy the spin anyways. <laughs> you know, you wonder all of a sudden if everyone starts to count him out. But there's months to go here. There's a long road here. Right. And Hillary Clinton still seems to be getting in more and not more, but a little more email problems here and there. More emails are now released. They keep coming out slow one by one. A judge like. has now made another decision in one of the email cases for the Freedom of Information release. And it's... Stuff that she didn't necessarily reveal is now being revealed. I guess Uma Abedin uh, also um, testified and, you know, 
I, I guess, opened up a little bit of a Pandora's or a, a problematic issue. I mean, yeah. the reality is, is there's still a lot of time for everything, for Donald to implode and for Hillary to implode. So what I want to really work on is the third alternative. So when those two have mutually the, the destroyed each other. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I, he, I have some news on that, by the way. Something's got to happen, right? If they both implode... Each party could still, I guess, somehow throw someone out there. Not, I mean, like, it, well, let's just say they both implode the would, night before. It would have to be a write-in campaign. Yeah, but I thought we were hearing that that wasn't going to work. Well, the problem is the, the dates to get on ballots are starting to pass. Yeah. Right? I know Texas has passed, but they're like, oh, we could maybe do uh, some court action <laughs> yeah. lawsuits and make that work. But maybe Johnson's going to win by default. More states keep, I mean, but you have your Libertarian, you have yeah. your Green Party. Right. So okay. who knows? I, but I, I don't know if those parties nationally have a level of legitimacy with your, your common no, voter yeah. right. that they'll look at that and see that as an option. I'm not sure. I think you're right. We'd have to do – we'd have to let somebody else do the polling and then we'd talk about it when after hmm. it happens. Okay. We could do the polling, but <laughs> ah, yeah, Remember the last of, time we did a poll? That's a lot of phone calls. We did one on Twitter. Yeah, we did a Twitter poll. Yeah. We'll get to that we'll later. We'll get to that later. Uh, Mitt Romney. Yes. Even though he lost in 2012, Mitt Romney says his family wants him to give the White House another shot this year. My wife and kids want me to run again this time, he told CBS News. Uh, I got an email from my son yesterday saying, you got to get in, Dad. you got to get in. He says he won't run. He says he, he doesn't think an independent candidate can win, and he wants to spare the feelings of his wife and children once again. That's a good man. I mean, everyone wants him to run, but he's thinking about what his wife wants. It's awesome. That's what he says. It's what you do. If he really loved her, you know what he ought to do? What's that? Uh, Buy her cookbook? Going up for oh. auction in London is the world's largest diamond ring. Oh, yeah. I saw that. Did you it, see that? It actually it's went up huge. to auction. Yeah, 1,109 carat diamond. It didn't hit the threshold for sale. Oh, really? They didn't hit the number they needed to they hit. They wanted it to go about $70 million. Yeah, sixty-three and it million. Got, it got to about sixty. It didn't get up uh, to the seventy, so uh, they, they pulled it back. For and they think that Brexit, of course, had a decision because people don't know where finances are at the moment, so they just can't reach into their couch cushions and pull out seventy it's, million. Oh, it's so. If he loved her, though, it's seven. It's only seventy-seven thousand per carat. Right. That's a discount per carat. That's crazy. And then what's great about it is she could just wear it around her neck, and you know. And I guess you'd have to probably have a brace, a back brace. And then you just have this huge diamond hanging from your neck. I think it's awesome. 70 mil. I don't get it. That's, a, that's amazing. Is it softball size or baseball size? Yeah, I think baseball size. I think baseball's more realistic when you're talking about a, what, a $70 million diamond. Second largest ever found. Yeah. And you know the person that found it was like, what's this? Look at this big piece of glass. Well, it was in a diamond mine, so they probably had a pretty good idea what it was. Yeah. I bet they're like, who's playing a joke on me? <laughs> you kids. Um, crazy stuff. Other news. You were yeah. talking about Donald Trump and how he didn't say anything controversial yesterday. Right. Uh, Senator Mike Lee of Utah ranted about his distaste for the Republican presidential uh, candidate in a phone interview with Newsmax TV. He says, I get it. You want me to endorse Trump? We can get into the fact that he accused my best friend's father of conspiring to kill JFK. 
We can go through the fact that he's made statements that some have identified correctly as religiously intolerant. We can get into the fact that he's wildly unpopular in my home state, in part because my state consists of people who are members of a religious minority church, a people who were ordered exterminated by the governor of Missouri in 1838, and statements like that make them nervous. But Lee said his concerns about Trump weren't permanent, especially if he, quote, heard the right things out of him. He added, I hope I can get over this because I can't vote for Hillary. Wow. It's weird how he could just, like, find a few things about Trump that he said that he didn't like. I bet you he could have gone for another hour. Yeah, I bet you he's, yeah. It's not like he <laughs> didn't dismiss a quarter of the population but of the world. How can you do that where there's so much he said that's wrong, but if I hear the right things, I'll vote for him? How yeah, can I, it's I, called politics, and it makes me sick to my belly. I can't, I, I don't get that. Is it because as a Republican senator, he has to work with the whole party? Probably. And so you have to kind of balance that versus yeah, your he, distaste for the yeah, actual and, candidate? Yeah, and you have to – yeah, I guess you have to play with the party as well, right? Whereas individual citizens, you don't have that connection to a party to for your professional life, so – Well, and a certain percentage of Senator Lee's uh, people, his constituency, are Donald Trump fans. They are. So – Just keep that in mind. Yeah. It's a fine line you got to walk. He did accuse his best friend's father of being involved in the JFK assassination. That's pretty. Yeah. It's pretty out there. <laughs> well, but I mean, it's also factual. He didn't go with like the Roswell cover up. He didn't. You know, for like aliens. Well, that's. that's by later. the way, I've been there. That'll be the October surprise. I've, it's not a cover up. I mean, it was a cover up, but it is real. I've seen the UFOs. See in Roswell. I've seen. The pictures right. of the bodies. They're called the grays. Sorry. Nerd alert. I know some information. Um, Hillary Clinton has said that she will release all information once she's president on aliens. You know what? I the, don't the, want that information. I want you to laughed. release yeah, no. the information about, <laughs> about Clinton's global initiative. That too. That's what Did I want to Did you take know. money from Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Are they funding 40% of your campaign at this point? That's what I want to answer know. these questions. That was what the whole issue. The new the judge came out and basically said, you now you need to release a lot of these emails to tell us where you were when you went and did those 14 state visits. You had other meetings that are not documented. Yeah. We need to know who those meetings were with. And were any of those people people that gave money to the Clinton Global Initiative? By the way, the mere fact that that question's being asked mm-hmm. just because of some what is it? Uh, some group uh, that's doing a freedom of information request. Yeah. It's that's and now a judge is supporting it. She has to start turning over 500 new emails a month until they get all the information they need. (laughs) Didn't they say that that would take like 70 years to release all of them? Yeah, she'll be dead before it's ever done. Okay. Continuing on. But we'll know about the the grays. The grays. One last note. uh, Corey Lewandowski, former campaign uh, director for Trump. Trump. Yeah. He had at one point – he was fired. Right. Now he's working on CNN. Donald Trump, fire, you're fired. Right. So he goes to CNN. Uh, there's stories about Anderson Cooper on CNN trying to block him from getting on his show. <laughs> he doesn't want anything to do with it, but management wants this guy all over the network. Right. Well, Corey Lewandowski had a $1.2 million offer from HarperCollins to write a book chronicling his time running Donald Trump's presidential campaign. But the publishing giant backed away from the deal amid concerns about Lewandowski's non-disclosure agreement with Trump. 
So how can you tell us what went on if you have a non-disclosure and you have to think every time, wait, does well, this right. qualify? Does this, does, this, does this violate that? Am and I nobody wants to be sued by Donald Trump. No. Join that group. Well, half the country. That's See, so he had, they had to back out. They backed him out. Crazy stuff. Well, it's good. It's good ideas anyway. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to do a little coach's corner. And, uh, you know, see what we can do to talk Leadership 101 just before we bring in two of uh, BYU's big leaders, Tom Holmos, the athletic director uh, here at Brigham Young University, and Kalani Sataki, the head coach of BYU football. They're going to be joining us in uh, just a few moments about uh, to talk to us about their lives, about what's going on. It is uh, BYU Football Media Day today, and we're honored to have them on board with us. So. Stick with us. We'll take a break. Be right back and uh, get the leadership talk going. We'll be right back. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Uh, hey, you know, to, to be... Called a coach uh, is is a great thing, right? Because you get the chance to lead, to inspire, to help people uh, figure out their talents, their gifts. In just a few moments, we're going to have BYU football's head coach, Kalani Sataki, joining us, and uh, the athletic director, Tom Holmo. They'll both be with us. So we wanted to spend this time talking about leadership. And uh, one of the things that I uh, get to a lot of uh, opportunities to go do is to go in with companies and sit down with their leaders, their executives, and figure out how you motivate people. So I'm always interested in how you choose to motivate, right? Because you can use the the stick method where you just beat them senselessly or, you know, use fear and force to get what you want. You can also, you know, use the carrot approach where you, you know, come on, buddy. Here's something you want, a little motivation just by simply giving them what they want. Uh, some use a little bit of both. You know, we'll, we'll pay you, and then if you if you're not doing what we need, we'll make you a little bit afraid. And so, how do you motivate uh, the people around you? And when you think about the greatest leaders you've ever had in your life, and this is a question I'm going to try to remember to ask our guests: uh, who who stands among the greatest leaders that you remember? Think about those that uh, that really inspired you, those that moved you, those that took you to a different level in your life. What was it about them personally that that helped you so much? Were they were they were they strong? Were they aggressive? Were they demanding? Is that how they got you to move? Did they intimidate? Did they use force and fear? Or did they just pay you off? Did they use a little bit of all of it or were they just completely different? Did they just feel like they were loving and like you were cared for? Is, do you motivate people by just showing you care? Is that enough? It seems like you'd need more than that. So leadership is – it's about – it's not just about what you say. It's not just about what you do. It's, it's probably more about all of it. And the number one thing I think a leader can do is get into and understand the people that they want to move. you got to figure out how you want to move somebody and – and you got to know who they are. Um, I look at it more like a gardener. A gardener has to know what they're trying to grow, right? 
They have to know their seed. They have to know what if they need more fertilizer. Do they need more water? Does this seed need more sunlight or less sunlight? And the more you understand the conditions that each individual seed needs, then you can go create conditions and make those conditions actually work for you and for them. Gardener. Gardener is, the, to me, the perfect metaphor of being a great leader. And honestly, when I think of the people that have most moved me and helped me along the way, it's that. They, they knew me. They got me. They fed me. They took care of me. We'll take a break. When we come back, Tom Holmo, BYU's athletic director, and Kalani Sataki, BYU's head football coach. They'll be joining us, folks. We're going to be talking leadership and uh, life. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So honored uh, by our next guest to be here with us. Um, today is BYU Football Day here on campus, which means we, it's all things football. You, When you walk into the BYU Broadcasting Building, all of the news media are here, and uh, our two guests, Tom Holmo, who's the athletic director for BYU, and head coach Kalani Sataki, for the head coach of the football team, they're joining us, but they get to make rounds today and figure out all... Uh, they get to, I think, meet probably with everybody, along with the entire football staff. We're talking football, but uh, because this is the Matt Townsend Show, we're also going to be talking leadership, uh, motivation, development. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. Honored. It's a pleasure to be here. Media Day is uh, something special for us and kind of kicks off the football season. And with that, the whole season for us this year. So here we go. It's, it's a big deal. You guys... Um, you're both leaders, right? So the way I kind of look at it, both athletes, uh, both played at BYU, uh, both had a chance in the pros. Uh, Tom played for like seven years. Tom Homo played for seven years. Kalani was injured but went to Cincy. Where was it you went? Yeah, Cincinnati Bengals. Cincinnati Bengals. Um, but, and then you both made it back to BYU. So, so a couple of questions kind of right up front. It's been, for you, Tom Homo, a big year, it seems like, as an outsider. You had to get a new coach, head coach, which seemed, I mean, over the last year seems like a, a hard, hard job. I'll let you explain that. But also rivalry issues that kind of hit the fan with University of Utah. And um, so, so maybe talk to us about your last year. What has that been like for you? And in a weird way, it seems like Kalani may be an awesome solution to both. Well, Matt, certainly it's been a busy year, but it's been a great year so far. Uh, the football team at BYU is packed with tradition. It's really important to the strength and the overall success of our athletic department. And in some senses, really for the kind of feelings of unity and um, excitement of our campus and actually what we call Cougar Nation. Yeah. So the football coach is really important. And that process of interviewing coaches and settling in with uh, Kalani was was just something that was a great experience for me. I think I'll never forget it. And from that time, it seems like it was a long time ago now. <laughs> but yeah. uh, how how long was it? It was nine months. Has it been that long? January. So, oh, it was January, December. Yeah, me. so not that long. December, so. no. But but as a, as a kind of a person that loves the sport and loves uh, the team, 
I also love – I went to the U, University of Utah, got a bachelor's there, got a master's from BYU. And Kalani, I've had this weird dilemma as being a fan of both, loving both, having friends that at the U that couldn't handle me loving both, having friends at BYU that couldn't handle both. But I saw an interview you did the other day that, that talks about how you choose – to, you choose to celebrate differently and choose to enjoy the sports differently. Talk about your view of you love Utah. You were there for t- 10 years, I believe, and you love BYU with all of your heart. How do you how do you do both? Yeah, I think that uh, no, nowhere in, in being a fan does it say that you have to wish bad things on the other. Right. So um, I think having a lot of pride in your team and having a lot of pride in your program um, is, is really important. But uh, I think that you know that's kind of where it sits, and and, and um, but I, I also understand uh, how fans can get really passionate. I mean, it's uh, being a fan; it's short for fanatic, so yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. And and I, I but I, I I just grew up differently, you know. With the, um, I mean, I, I grew up BYU fan. I don't remember when I started. I just knew I always did. Yeah, you knew. Yeah, and so, um, but at the same time, I. Had a lot of uh, there's a lot of crossover, a lot of people that 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 I I knew as I got older, especially my own siblings that went to Utah, and so uh, it wasn't um, it wasn't a heated deal for for me and my family, and we we wished great things on everyone, and uh, it was it was a great way to to be part of the rivalry, but also just celebrate so much of of what you will like in your team rather than. Uh, wish bad things on the yeah. others. It's almost like if you have a love of the sport, the love of the sport should transcend the teams. You know, Kalani wouldn't be the first coach in America that went to a rivalry school. Uh, I actually, living in the Bay Area, had coached at Stanford That's University right. and Cal, which is a huge rivalry. Yeah. And the thing that was hard is I, I went from Stanford to the 49ers as a DB coach and then over to Cal. Uh, when I went to Cal, the people at Cal, some of them, wanted me to hate Stanford. It's right. hard to do that. No. I, I had great years at Stanford, and it's just when you play that mat, when you play that game, yeah. you want it more than anybody. Oh, I bet. I <laughs> bet. in that. But um, I, I like the, the, what Kalani's brought to this rivalry. Uh, I think that with the games that will be played in the future, it'll be interesting to see how people react to that and how we do. And a lot of it just has to do Basically, with winning and yeah, losing. <laughs> exactly. It does, doesn't it? And it seems like when I watched uh, you, Kalani, um, coaching for OSU against uh, the Utes, there's something exciting to know that you were inside of uh, Kyle Whittingham's game and brain to a degree. You know him as a good, good friend. And it, I think it adds a certain sense of, uh, I don't know, nuance to the game that this is deeper than just two teams that don't know each other. You guys are – you really – you, for, for Kyle Whittingham, he's a, he's a mentor. He's a good friend. Yeah, and, and, and uh, he's a BYU graduate too. Right. You know, so um, there's a – talking about crossover, there, that, that happens quite a bit. And it's, it's not like I'm the first coach that's ever mm-hmm. uh, embraced both sides. And you're looking at what Lavelle did when he was a coach here. I, I played here when Lavelle and Mac had such a great relationship. Oh, I know. And it was a lot of fun. And um, – uh, you know, at the same time, my older brother was playing at Utah, and it was <laughs> just fun. But it didn't, it didn't, um, it didn't make it um, easier when we played each other. I, no. mean, I, I wanted to win so yeah. bad. What's that like after at dinner? After dinner, I mean, after the game, you guys go to dinner. <laughs> well, that's, it's it's what it is. I mean, it, you you deal with the game, and you 
but afterwards uh, you go back to your life and you um you know you celebrate what you, what you did as if you were victorious and if you lost and you try to fix things but um regardless that the relationships that you have before the game will continue afterwards mm-hmm. and uh, the game should itself should not affect that relationship but wanting to win i think it just uh, the the just being familiar with each other and uh, being that close yeah. makes it even more competitive, which uh, makes it a lot of fun. It really, it does, and and I think, uh, man, I wish we could all know what you know while you're doing it. Because Tom, what were you going to say? I was going to say that with um, when I came in as a freshman, one of my best friends was Kyle Whittingham. His father was the one, uh, Fred, who's yeah. a great football coach at both BYU and Utah, that recruited me. And uh, when we when I came in here. We were freshmen together, and so you can't. There's something between teammates when we played here mm-hmm. together at BYU. Even though he's a coach at Utah, uh, we kind of have a thing that after every game, win or lose or draw, I, can't, I guess you can't tie anymore. <laughs> yeah, overtime, but that we're gonna we're gonna go see each other on the field after the game, and you know, unfortunately, I've had to see him a few too many times lately. Have you? And you're like, Ugh. talk about the community. So as you're hiring a head coach, and this is something I think Kalani's done really well, is the idea of reigniting community of the community of the past players back into the team. I know that there's a reverence that uh, I see that Kalani has for um, Lavelle Edwards. And I know it sounds like he's a great mentor for you. Um, Was that, do you think, okay, I need to find a coach that can create a strong community for BYU fans, um, but maybe even a a good community and friendship community with, with the other teams. Was that part of your consideration or is that just something Kalani brought in? I think that each um, coaching position across the country, if it, depending on what school it was at and what sport it was in, would really have a set of criteria that you'd look at. Here at BYU, I think it's really important that the head coach of the football team can connect with the community. Yeah. That he would be someone who would spend time thinking about the reflect, reflecting upon how the team would um, be in the community. And since so many, we have so many fans that wake up every morning oh. and the first thing they want to do is open up the paper and All see day. what happened in practice yesterday. Those are things that it helps a great deal if you have a coach that's connected. Oh. And, and you is that a natural thing for you, Kalani? Because I know you've said before you were shy. But yeah, I, I was shy, but uh, I was very passionate about BYU yeah. ever since I could remember um, as a child. And so um, I've said it before that a BYU was was in my life. I mean, I, I I was a fan before I even became a player here, mm-hmm. and especially before I became a coach. So being a fan would be uh, always be the f- take first yeah. first in my role, you know. And so I, uh, it, it's 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 a lot of fun, but um, it's also it's something that I I learned from Lavelle to just be myself. What great advice! And be a fan first, and be a fan at last. In the end, you're going to end up a fan. <laughs> Right? Um, powerful stuff. We're going to continue the discussion with Tom Holmo, who is the athletic director here at Brigham Young University, and Kalani Sataki, the head coach of BYU football. Honored to have him on our set here, and we'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We don't want to waste a second, as in the studio today, we have uh, the BYU Athletic Director, Tom Holmos, with us. 
And uh, BYU football head coach Kalani Sataki uh, starting up his first year, what, six months into it. He's not starting. He, he's been working since the second he got the job. But we're honored to have them on board, and uh, we're, we're basically, I'm picking their brains. I want to find out about the men behind the positions. And uh, one of the things I, I really wonder, and I, I guess, Tom, you can start with answering it and then fill in uh, where you can, Kalani, because BYU is, a, is an, L, it's an LDS church-affiliated organization. Um, does, does the affiliation with a church hinder the ability to do what a, a regular team that's not affiliated with a with a religious organization what they can do does it hinder BYU i think it helps BYU i really do i think that the majority of the majority of the kids that come to play at BYU in any sport are going to come and choose BYU because of the spiritual aspect of yeah. the school campus community so when they come here i i think that it's only fair that they should get what they came for. Yeah. So uh, that's one of the things when when I looked at the coaches and that was really attractive with Kalani is that he's a strong man. Yeah. He's a good man. And that I'm trying to look for someone that's going to be able to – someone who's going to be able to um, lead and direct and guide yeah. individuals. There, I know from experience watching here at BYU that – Almost every day, there's going to be an individual on that team that's going to need some assistance right. and some mentorship. And Kilani has a wealth of experience. He served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He's had experiences that have shaped his life. Yeah. He's been a player. He's been a coach. He's had success on a grand scale. He's had some failures. So the balance, he's seen a lot of it. And I think he'll be able to give a very balanced perspective to the kids that he uh, tutors. Do you feel that, Kalani? Do you feel, I mean, as a head coach, obviously, you're the CEO of the team. Um, what else do you feel for these boys as far as – you're almost a father for them at times, a mentor, a spiritual leader. What What do you feel – is, are some of your most important roles? Well, I think that um, my job as a coach is to take care of their needs, whatever they could be, and and to make sure that they progress from um, that transition into adulthood. Um, yeah. You know, they're, they're going from um, high school, and then they get in this position in, in college where they're making that transition to become, um, you know, leaders in the community and contributors to society. And um, they've done great things. I mean, I I think the the most important thing for me as a coach is to celebrate the the strengths that they have, and a lot of that um, is on the football field. But there's a lot more that they do off the field, and that that means um, we're going to build on the fact that these guys sacrifice more than most young men when they're 18 and 19 years old. Uh, being the uh, large majority of this team served missions, and they've already sacrificed more than a lot of other people on, that they're going against in other in other. Does programs. that give you an advantage? Do you sense? I think it does because, um, I mean, they, they did something that, that uh, a lot of others wouldn't right. be willing to do. And, and especially in the prime part of their life, you know, where um, they're paying for their own their own own uh, experience of serving uh, for others. And that's, uh, I mean, something just happens to you when you're able to think of others and then you build it around the central message of Jesus Christ and um, and the gospel. And you see how much change it's done for people. And, and, and to be honest with you, I, I lived it. You know, and so I, yeah. and, and and Tom mentioned it before that uh, I just I went I'm a, I'm a product of uh, what's happened in my life, and then being able to be a resource for these young men as being a, a former player, also a fan, and uh, and 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 a student, and um, so my my role is more to bridge 
uh, the athletic side to the academics and also the spiritual and being able to have that mesh together. And my experience of being a player here and uh, being part of the team and, uh, you know, seeing the things that Lavelle did when he was a coach here, yeah. which highlights every aspect of those, of the, 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 you know, being the social part, the academic part and the spiritual part of, of their life has been, it's been beautiful. And, and I've been really happy with, uh, and I've just embraced everything that coach Mendenhall has done for the program too. So uh, um, my role, they, our players have spiritual leaders that, that have those, those roles, but I, I do have a testimony and have the priesthood, and it's about uh, you know our guys being able to uh, live with all those different roles yeah. and, and be able to highlight on, on their strengths. And still, you gotta you gotta get on the field and win and do all of that on top of that. Um, but but like you were saying, Tom, it it all kind of seems to come together because you 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 came to BYU. You um, you played. You then went on. You played. You had a, a great pro career. Seven years with the Forty ers right? Four Super Bowl rings. Um, but a dad, a husband, and uh, here's okay. Just for time's sake, do you're a, you have four Super Bowl rings? Not to remind you again, Tom. <laughs> but nobody has that. That's rare. And so you're and you're the athletic director of BYU um, and a father and all these things. What stands out for you as some of the most important learnings from a guy that's played pro ball, a guy that's gone as far as you can usually go in the NFL, won the Super Bowls? What are the most important lessons you've learned? One of the most important lessons is it's not about the rings. Right. Uh, when I came to BYU, I was uh, not a member of, this, uh, of the LDS faith, and I'm a convert. I joined the church after I left BYU. But I think some of the things I learned here, and one very important thing I think from Coach Edwards was – even though I was a very good football player, I certainly hope that my life wasn't going to be defined as being a football player. I, I'd like to think that there were other things that would people would remember me for. Yeah. And it certainly wouldn't want to be that I had four Super Bowl rings. <laughs> you want more. <laughs> Sounds a little silly right it, 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 It's interesting, but, but most of the world would think that is the coolest thing in the world, except the guy that has it is saying – well, there's I, more. There's more. When you're young, look at it, my my mind has changed. On that. Right. <laughs> I had a strong desire early on. Yeah, to, you did to wear them around all the time because I thought that they were so great. But I don't really wear them very much now. I think right now, the thing that is best is is the family. Um, I, I think those experiences of earning those rings with my teammates yeah. and my coaches and the people of San Francisco. That's so much deeper. So today. We get together. We still have really – I love my teammates with the 49ers, and I still talk with my coaches and teammates. And when I go to San Francisco, we don't talk about the rings. We talk about the, the relationships and the yeah. relationships. And so like yesterday, I had a great chance to talk for about an hour with one of my teammates that we're working on something um, that, he's, that he's working on. And when I hung up, it felt so good. That's and, great. And that lives forever. That goes forever. The rings yeah. are – they'll tarnish and – yeah. But see, that's perspective, right? And that's one thing I love is that once you kind of get to this level, you also get to a level where you realize what is important and family and relationships. Um, Kalani, what what about your family? You, you, you've been thrust into this. What does your wife say? Does she still humble you every night? And do your kids just still call you dad? Yeah, I mean, that, that's uh, – I, I have to give um, uh, a lot of – Thanks to Tom and and uh, you know the things that they provided here for me as a coach and uh, and uh, it allows me to uh, you know thrive in my my role as a father and as a husband 
and so I, I've been very fortunate where I, um, you know, I'm not, they're not lacking too much of my time, but I, obviously uh, my wife understands. In fact, she wants this to, uh, she's pushing me to, to, you know, keep working. Kill it. Kill it, season. I mean, that's, yeah. but I, I am, I am, um, I'm here because of her. I'm here because of my family. I'm here because of the, the wonderful leaders and mentors I had in my life that led me to this point. And, and, and I'm, the, the the highlight of BYU is the people that we get to work with, mm-hmm. the people that are involved, and um, they're they're family. I go to work and I feel like I'm around family. I mean, uh, you just mentioned the, the Super Bowl rings that Tom had, but you you, you also remember that he was a player and uh, right. he played for Lavelle. We played for the same yeah. coach, and and uh, his his uh, his knowledge and his experience as a coach is huge for us. And uh, it's for me, I, I mean, I can I can always go to him for advice and. You look at the administration, the people that that, that uh, Tom has working with them, and they're they've been great. I mean, uh, you got Brian Santiago, Chad Lewis, oh, and Lee Johnson. All great these, team. These great names, the guys that that, that I that I that I can count on, and then there's a lot of others that that just you, it's more than just football. You know, it's just uh, they're they're a huge resource for me and a huge. Uh, I can lean on them heavily for so many different things, and it covers every spectrum that you could think yeah. about, and that's a huge compliment to what. BYU is all about. And it's family. It really yeah, is, isn't it? It is an extension of our family. So you just, it's family at home with, with my wife and kids, and I get the same thing at work, and there's not a lot of places that you can do that. That's amazing. Matt, I, I love it. When I go home, it's very humbling that my children, who are grown now, 32 to 22, four of them, they'll, they'll rip me up on things, decisions <laughs> I made at work. Dad, you're I such an idiot. Show, they'll come go, Dad. That was wrong. You didn't do that. Or even in games, we'll come home and, and play. We'll something. discuss. We'll discuss the games, like the football game, yeah. over and over. And I have two girls and two boys, and my two girls know as much of football. That's than cool. Kalani and I have something in common in that as soon as we finished college, we got into coaching. When we yeah. started, so our families really. They don't know anything differently. So, this is your job like, in life. This is we, what it's always. Know, if we come home a little bit late some night, they think, "Well, you better have gotten a good recruit if you're going to come home late." <laughs> yeah, we talk about. Did it you and, get him, Dad? Yeah, Did you get him? Sure. Oh, that's cool. What um, as you? So here we are, leaders. You are leaders, um, and and who motivates you? So what leaders from your life? And if we could even non-football, because. There's so many that I'm sure are football because that's always been your life. Any other leaders stand out? Any other mentors? Any other people that you love to read about or emulate and you'd like to emulate? Anyone, whoever, well, Kalani? For, for me, it's it's. I think it's difficult for me to name one person yeah. because I could go down the list and just uh, – it would be here for a long time <laughs> if, I, if I listed so many people that just were instrumental in my life and, and – um, that 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 goes from you know football coaches, but also the teachers and uh, um, my family. Obviously, yeah. I mean, I, I've been, I've said it before that I I am the um, the product and result of a lot of others' hard work and sacrifice. And to be honest with you, all, all I did was just sit and listen and follow. And, follow and, that uh, lead. Yeah, and and that's that's what the iron rod's all about. You know, where you just have all that support that helps lead you where you need to be. And uh, I think it's difficult for me to name. Uh, one person, but I mean, I, I I know my family's been the biggest part Huge. of it. And you heard Tom talk about his family. My my family, they're the, they're the biggest critics that I have. And so, what what else can anyone else say when my I get it at home? You know, it's it's it's. <laughs> that's Why hard. did you do that? Exactly. That's gotta they be question fun. everything, and and I love them to death. Mm-hmm. So 
but it, it's it's um, my family is has been the rock for me, and uh, even even in my failures and my shortcomings, um, just knowing that I have the love and support from them uh, has been huge for me to, to lean on. So I, I, and that that all ties into the gospel. Yeah, and uh, it's not about perfection. It's about it's just about having the love that you know you can support. It just gives you a lot of a huge sense of security. These are just basic principles, aren't they? Well, I remember when I was little, I, I really liked my teachers in school. I think I was drawn to the fact that they, I knew that they were trying to help us and they're, they're serving us. And, and then as you become older and play on teams, your coaches are very influential. But my mom and dad were very influential. I have a brother and sister that are older than me that really took me under their wing. So I think it, it started with family first. Yeah. And then I was blessed to be able to be around some great people. One of the things that's great about being on the campus of BYU is you get to rub shoulders with the church leaders. Yeah. And I think in my career, it continually changes that I, I hope that I'm continually learning. And here at BYU, we have the incredible examples of the brethren around all the time. Yeah. So I, I remember when I was at uh, you know Cal or the 49ers or Stanford, I, I didn't really hear a lot of the words of the you know, like the administrator. Oh, yeah. Oh, you didn't because you were away. I, mean, I, could, I could read them and stuff. Yeah. But when you're here at BYU, yeah, you're, you're going to hear them talk. And they're on campus, yeah. And uh, their examples are the best in the world. So it's you don't have to go far to yeah. hear and be mentored by the living prophets. We got about uh, a minute, minute and a half uh, left. What would you tell – like my son. I have five boys, a girl and five boys. They all wish they could be standing right here. Um what would you guys tell a 15-year-old boy that wants to – he may not be able to do it in football or sports but wants to be at your level of kind of excellence? What advice do you give a 15-year-old? Tom? I, I, I give that advice all the time and that would be to communicate. Learn how to communicate and to build strong relationships because whatever endeavor you're going to be in in your life, you're going to need to make sure that you can go through the – the give and take, and you have to sacrifice. And if you love somebody, which is uh, which we do around here, yeah. then you you'll do things for them to make them build them up and maybe help them do things that they couldn't have done without you. And so I think if you can communicate effectively with people and you can become kind of a problem solver, usually you solve problems through working and talking and building strong relationships. Yeah, those are solved through trust. And it's it's when you can really be um, beloved by people, and you feel like they trust you, and you trust them. That's all you need. That's all you got. It's all you need, and it'll go forever, right? Kalani, what would you tell the kids? Well, I think just it goes in in, in um, you know in accordance to what what Tom's saying. That um, for me, I've I've been preaching to a lot of recruits and, and a lot of camps that we're doing is for our uh, young people to listen to their parents. It's it's the number one thing where. Um, no, no other relationship around is there where, where someone's willing to give up everything they have and sacrifice so that so that this other person can be better and have right. more. And so I think, um, and and no one, I mean, you don't know true love until you have children and 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 a family. And and so I I, I think that uh, you know, for our, our our young people to listen to their parents and to, to lean heavily on their advice is, would be. Huge for their success. Huge. Great stuff. We appreciate you guys. Athletic Director Tom Homo, Head Coach Kalani Sataki. Have a great year, you guys. Knock them dead. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for being wonderful leaders. Appreciate it. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, have a whole other hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. Helping you see the good in the world. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Just had a great interview with uh, Tom Homo and um, Kalani Sataki. It's just, it's amazing. I think they like talking to us because we don't talk football. Today they're going to talk football all day long. Yeah, you never once asked who was going to be the starting quarterback. I know, isn't that fun? Ty Detmer sitting out there, and he's answering questions. Every question is about football, yep. and he's going to get that same question 33 times a day. But By the way. No one's going to ask them about their heroes or motivations or any of that. So it's BYU uh, f- uh, Football Media Day. Yes. And so the, all of the press is here um, interviewing coaches all over the building. But they have posters up everywhere. And right out of our window, there's a picture, a poster of Tanner Mangum, mm. the quarterback at BYU, that I'm pretty sure he's going to pass to me. Yes. But I have this – every time I look over there, I think i got to have my hands up just in case he throws it. I always look over and go, that is some major nasal flare he's got going yeah. on Well, you, you flare your nose so you can get air. He's concentrating. He's, yeah, yeah. he's trying to get air into it's his system. It's an intimidation system. thing. And then they blow it up yeah. so the picture is bigger. It just sort of enhances yeah. the I nasal love flare. it when you're flaring your nostrils and then they blow the picture up. It's just great. It's a great position for you to be in. It's your good side. You always talk about your good side versus your bad yeah, side. Yeah. Your wife your wife will take you into a, a public gathering and someone goes to take a picture and she like just maneuvers you oh, yeah, totally. right into position. So I'm into my ugly side. And then you're looking around like, what? How did I get here? I didn't know I had an ugly side, but after about 20 years of marriage, I realized that um, Is it the lopsided somebody ear? finally took a picture on the other side of my body and I'm like, <laughs> that looks so much better. Yeah. And then my wife's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I have – this is my favorite side. And I realize she has always positioned me toward my ugly side. So is your good side facing towards me or is that the other side? No, it's not about front and back. No, no, like – so you're kind of turned to the side. No, my good side is probably my right side. Okay, that makes sense. My ugly side is my left side because that's where you can see I'm receding in hair. Okay. Mm. I also think that's where my ear is smaller backwards and I'll call a flowered up. That's I, nice. Because I wrestled once with a guy that was left-handed. <laughs> <laughs> and he totally messed up my ear. Hey, we have got a great uh, show. We will be replaying one of my favorite interviews, I, I believe. Uh, can I say? Of all time. Other than when you interviewed me for the job. Because that one was pretty that good. Was, that was pretty That big. was a good interview. Colossal. There was some happiness um, there. And I love interviewing the coaches. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I probably should never say that because I have great I, – I like interviewing a lot of people. But Dr. Right. Lisa Miller will be joining us. She's, uh, t- she talks about spirituality. She is from Columbia University, a uh, professor that talks about the mental health benefits of spirituality, having a connection to um, a higher power. She doesn't ever talk about what your higher power has to be, but – to be able to connect into a higher power, a higher sense of being, and um, it's powerful. It is really a powerful interview. So we'll get to that interview in just a few moments. But uh, first, we got we got a lot to do. It is Social Media Day. It's also Leap Second Adjustment Day because we lose a second every so often. Apparently, and the, so we there's a bit of a wobble in the yeah, orbit. Apparently, yeah. Believe me. There's a wobble. 
So uh, we're just celebrating those days. Um, but uh, before we get to some other headlines, I've got uh, we've got a headline we've got to talk about. There is a church, a Christian church, that's basically suggesting that you're supposed to test God. I'd suggest you don't. And we'll be talking about that and uh, a bunch of other crazy stories coming up. But first, let's get to the headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? Thank you, Matt. U.S. officials said that a U.S.-led coalition struck near the city of Fallujah, Iraq, on Wednesday, killing at least 250 ISIS fighters and destroying some 40 vehicles. Uh, If confirmed, this series of strikes would be one of the most deadly against the terrorist group. This comes in the aftermath of an attack at the airport in Turkey on Tuesday. The CIA director, John Brennan, is warning Americans that a deadly attack like the one on Tuesday at an airport in Turkey could soon happen in the United States. No group has claimed responsibility yet for the attack, which left 42 people dead. But it has the hallmarks of an Islamic State operation and, according to the CIA director... In the face of mounting criticism over its lack of diversity, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences just rolled out its longest and most diverse list of invitations to date. Of the 683 prospective new members, 46% are female and 41% are people of color. On Wednesday, Michael Phelps became the first American male swimmer to qualify for five Olympic teams over the course of his career. During the U.S. Olympic trials in Omaha, the 22 Olympic medalist finished first in the men's 200-meter butterfly, automatically qualifying for the 2016 Games in Rio. Go Phelps. Earlier this week in Oakland, California, a go-kart driver was filmed by a witness fleeing from the police, chasing him on a stretch of highway. A crowd of onlookers cheered the man as on as he sped down the highway without stopping. It was unclear whether the man was eventually stopped by the police or if he got away. <laughs> Thank you, Sadie. That's good. Good job. Thanks. Fallujah. She nailed it. I'm telling you. That's this a tough is, one. It's a tough one. And do um, you remember what, how you used to pronounce it and then they shut down the station? <laughs> no, they didn't. Yes, they did. I nailed it the first time. Okay. I, I have played video games that take place in Fallujah. Really? Yes. So it's almost like you've been to it's, Fallujah. I've been there. Like, Chernobyl? There's a, there's a game I played where it takes you into Chernobyl and you're walking through the streets. And then I watched a documentary where a guy went in in a radiation sh- suit holding a uh, Geiger counter. And you're watching, you know, that it's still after all these years, there's a lot of uh, residual energy still there. But in the video game, Versus what he saw, I'm like, I've been there. I bet. I walked in there. That's I where that my car that's right where, That's there. where that attack dog came after me, and I take you know, and that that's where these people. Sni- out that attack. The dog. sniper dog was on top. The sniper was on top of that parking structure. Sniper you know? dog. So I, I mixed the dogs. Okay. It was a sniper. It was one of those games. But I mean, I've, been, I've been to Chernobyl. I've been. I've seen the reactor. They call it the elephant foot, the melting mass that came out of the core. It's called the elephant foot kind of looks like it are you done go ahead sorry tangents man they happen you've never been to fallujah you've never been to chernobyl i've been to chernobyl i actually got out that was the best part that's chernobyl was so bad that's when they got those dogs that started to shoot people (laughs) it's crazy see you not only have been there but now you have like really weird dreams about it i'm making up whole new scenarios there's an elephant at chernobyl it's called the elephant foot look it up okay no i believe you no you don't i've just never been there even on the video game. One time on Mario Kart, though. Really? I went to a <laughs> You're really on the magical Rainbow Bridge. Place. It's great. I love the Rainbow Bridge. 
Um, <laughs> we got a, a little update for you. We will not have a nine or a, a nine Eastern. No, what is it? A, noon. A, a noon. An eleven. Nine, ten, eleven Eastern. Well, you don't know the. We time won't zones. have an eleven Eastern show because we will be. I know we'll be turning it over for BYU Media Day. They have an event where it's called State of the Program, where they're going to be talking about the state of the of the BYU football team. So we've already talked to the bosses. Yeah. So you know you, you know you was, know what's happening. It was a coup. We got it. Okay, we got to get to this story. Um, these churches are trying to do everything they can to get people to go to church, right? Yep. And it's you know it's a noble effort. But it seems like they might be going a little too far. Some are actually testing God. And they what they're going to do is offer a money-back guarantee on your tithes and offerings. Whoa. I wouldn't go there. New Spring Church in South Carolina is one of hundreds of congregations across the country that have offered a 90-day tithing challenge. Hmm. The magazine, a magazine uh, has reported... Churchgoers pass an offering basket should they be able uh, – and so if, if I put money in my basket, right, should I be able to get a refund if I don't get the blessings I was expecting? Okay. And so what they're told to do is participants sign up with a commitment to give 10% of their income or more, and if God doesn't hold true to his promises of blessings, after three months, they can request their money back, no questions asked. Satisfaction guaranteed. Hmm. Okay. I don't know. It's nuts. You're you're putting a three-month time limit on God is kind of what they're doing there, right? Right. And the assumption is you would know blessings he's giving you. How do you know, well, I wanted a Ferrari, and God never brought me a Ferrari. He maybe didn't, but he also didn't give you cancer. Hmm. He also stayed that uh, accident that would have paralyzed you. Yeah, there's some there's some difficulty in, in proving your end result wasn't a but a positive. They do have scriptural legitimacy. They do. According to Malachi hmm. three eleven, uh bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, hmm. saith the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Preach on. Isn't that – okay. So at, at this church, at the New Spring Church, 440 people took up this most recent recent challenge. Um, and out of the participants, out in over four years that they've been participating, 7,000 people in four years have taken the challenge. Fewer than 20 hmm. have asked for their well, money back. Probably because you make the donation and then now you're essentially taking the money back from God. Right. But you're also essentially – if you're faithful enough to do the donation, you're probably also faithful enough to go see that God is still blessing you. Right. Except for the 20 yeah. that obviously are going down to Hadesville. That's where they're headed? Apparently. Is that the end result of this? Hmm. Well, because – listen, let's just show it. Because So if I go do the test, yep. I pay 10% of my income, and I, I think, okay, I want a new car. And if God doesn't give me the new car, I take my money back? How about if I want a new job and God didn't give me a job? I'm out of here. What if I thought I wanted to lose 20 pounds and God didn't give me 20 pounds of weight loss? I'm out. Very vengeful, God. (laughs) 
bringing the hammer. I wanted a better jawline. My father had a great jawline, but I got my mom's jowly jawline. Where are you, God? Wow. Where does this end? Yeah. See, you, you can't... think he'd run out of bolts after a while. Yeah, no. He's got a never-ending supply. <laughs> Apparently. It's just, I don't know. And then this one came in. Somebody wanted uh, tickets to Doctor Strange. Yes. And he didn't get them. Oh. So he wants his money back. That's going to be a good movie, by the way. Oh. What? Nothing. It'll be an entertaining movie. Well, this just seems take... like a weird movie. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like in the way of everything else. It seems hey. strange. A little bit. Doctor. Doctor Strange. Okay, the rule should just be have faith in God. Mm. When God says test me, he's not saying, look, I'll give you a satisfaction money back guarantee. But why not? He's not. Everything he's else. He's saying test me. Like I, I can order shoes online. If yeah. I don't like them, I send them right back. Money yeah. back. <laughs> why but, can't it be the same? Well, who gave you the shoes? Who gave you the money? Who gave you the cows well, for right. the leather? But I'm not satisfied with the purchase. Yeah. The transaction, I didn't get what I needed out of it, so why can't I get a money-back guarantee? You, let's just say heaven is not your destination. <laughs> not to judge. Not to judge, not to condemn. I don't know. There's got to be better ways to get people to go to church than getting a money-back guarantee. We've already made it easy for them. You pull up in your car for church. You mm-hmm. don't have to get out. They've put ATMs in some churches. ATMs now. It's all entertainment. You can go have your family babysat. You can get a manicure, get waxed. Live bands. Live bands yeah. while you're edified with the in, you know, enriching word of the gospel. They've taken away a lot of the personal interaction because they put it in like a, a basketball stadium type yeah. building. Right. And then you don't have to be on a name basis. You get your preaching mm-hmm. and you can leave. So yeah. there's The pastor doesn't even need to know you. The accountability's gone. It's great. And now a money-back guarantee on tithing. I like the ATM because sometimes you just need some cash. Sometimes I need some cash to put. They put it so I can so I can pay my tithing. So then I can. Well, who, who carries cash? See, that's the thing. See, you. In fact, Neil Maxwell said this. One of my favorite men on earth. He said, uh, "Some people do service and then they wait around for like a receipt, yeah, to show that they've done their service." God's not going to give you a receipt. How are you going to write that off if you don't have the receipt? <laughs> that's the point. You just get to enjoy. That's why we. That's why our next guest is the bomb. She's my favorite teacher around. Dr. Lisa Miller is going to join us. We have a, a wonderful interview that we uh, have done with her. She's been on the show a couple times. But she's going to be talking about the power of spirituality. And she wrote a book called The Spiritual Child, Educating the Head and the Heart, it's she's she's out of Columbia University, folks. She's she's amazing in her research about your mental health and your spirituality. Having a connection to God in some way, shape, or form helps you in your mental health, helps you in life, helps you in so many different ways. So stick around when we come back. Dr. Lisa Miller will be joining us talking about the spiritual child. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of my favorite guests of all time, Dr. Lisa Miller is joining us. And the topic is why I love it, but then her depth is incredible for me. And uh, the book, The Spiritual Child, is one that I think we all need to dig into to understand ourselves, I think, better, but also our children. 
Uh, here's what this is about. We, we focus so much on cognitive skills. We learn a bunch of things when we're young, cursive, spelling, math, and science. But teaching principles that the heart needs to understand is a different matter entirely and a delicate one. Even those, those, those skills about using our morality and using our character, uh, I think we may not be teaching them as much as we need to be. So our guest today is Dr. Lisa Miller. She's a professor and director of clinical psychology at uh, Columbia University, also the author of The Spiritual Child. She joins us now in studio. Dr. Miller, welcome to the show it's again. It's terrific to be here right here in studio with know, you, Matt. Thank I you. I love it. And I love having you here because last time we talked over, it was, you know, it was, you, were a lot, you weren't as close. But now I can actually feel your spirit. Likewise. That's cool. Likewise. Uh, and you're on campus here at BYU. You're going to be talking uh, and, and doing some, some conversations with the students and faculty here on BYU. I'm so excited to be back here at BYU. You know, my friendship and academic relationship with BYU is nearly 20 years is now. Is it really? How powerful. Uh, tremendous colleagues. Um, really, BYU is at the cutting edge. Yeah for the whole field of psychology on bringing spirituality and religion right into the mainstream, understanding hard times and good times from a spiritual perspective. Well, and yeah. talk about that, because historically it seemed like we used to try to think that spirituality was kind of this weak, this weakness of humans, <laughs> and we'd kind of box it away and then just deal with the psychology but now we're seeing an interplay, a major interplay. Absolutely. And you're so right. You know, even 30 years ago, not so long ago, psychology had a very unfortunate view of spiritual life, which was that it was somehow a crutch for hard times. Right, right. But that has changed and we've come a very long way. Spirituality is now understood because we now have a basic science of mm -hmm. spiritual life as innate to every human being. Every single person is born from day one a spiritual being. Really? And that we can see in twin studies. We can see that in the patterns of human thriving, mm. whether we look at health and wellness or even right into the core of the person with the x-ray eyes of an MRI. Yeah, yeah. We know that we are naturally spiritual beings and that we thrive and we flourish when we build foremost our spiritual heart and work from a spiritual core. That is, okay, that's amazing. Because now let me make sure, Columbia University... You got it. Almost the heart twenty of years New York. there, <laughs> <laughs> but this is to me because we've kind of you've always sensed that. I mean, Emerson talked about mm -hmm. the divine spark. The, I mean, this has always mm -hmm. been a sense, and now we can validate it scientifically. The science has been enormously helpful in putting spirituality into the center of psychology, and we now have basic science findings. For instance, if we look at twin studies, twins raised together, yep. twins raised apart, we can see that about thirty percent of our capacity through which we feel the great love of the transcendent. 30% of our endowment in day one is in our genes. It's a heritable it's trait you. right there with you know, temperament, IQ, any other trait. Yeah. And yet two thirds of our capacity to experience love and transcendent relationship. That comes from our own development of okay. spiritual life and how we're raised. Yeah. So, you know, two thirds socialized, one third heritable. Mm -hmm. It looks a lot like, most forms of learning and growth. Really? Yes. Very, so it is kind of, it's, it's, it's us. It's who we are. It is it's who we nature. are. Absolutely. The difference between spirituality and all the other variables we've looked at is that there is nothing as profoundly impactful in the human life as a personal relationship with the higher power. Really? I mean, of everything, you, of everything we could have, of good coping skills, of good uh, self-esteem, self-worth, you're saying it's the most important. 
parenting opportunity? Anything from the outside or the Financial inside? Financial support, social status. Anything to have been looked at by science. All of those things. Don't hold a candle to the power of a strong personal relationship with the higher power. And within the broadband view of spirituality, yeah. it is really that core. It's the heart's relationship with, you know, from a global perspective, God, Allah, Hashem, yeah. Jesus, whoever, yeah. whatever yeah, faith yeah, tradition yeah. one may be from, that core spiritual heart. Which tells us, I guess, because it is universal and everywhere you go, there's some higher being or power or belief system, not maybe everywhere, but there's all of these other ideas of this higher power. There's something universal driving everyone to a higher power. Absolutely. And then when we see with puberty through time around the world, there's always a coming of age ceremony. A ritual. A, a ritual where we honor and know the young person as emerging as a spiritual knower, hmm. taking up the mantle and with that responsibility. Yeah. Now you're a now you're a now you have agency. Now you have or now you have choice. Now you have choice. And, and we have, accountable. you know, one day nine Navajo girls showed up at my classroom in Columbia unannounced. So I said, How come amazing. in. I said, yeah. come in. And they stood up and they told, first and foremost, I said, anything you want, share with us a story. They told their coming of age ceremony. Oh, wow. And, and now, indeed, we see with the science that with puberty, literally biological puberty, comes an augmented spiritual capacity in girls and boys. Really? And here our traditions have known this all along. Mm -hmm. why, so why do we fight it so much? Why does this, why, and why is there this dichotomy of science versus spirit? Yeah, in the past year, I've been on book tour with The Spiritual Child. And what I found is that when thoughtful people, and there are millions of thoughtful yeah. people, have a chance to really look at a science, a clear science that says we are naturally spiritual. And if that is central to how we live, it is the greatest source of thriving and health known to medical or clinical science. People hear that. And the left brain relaxes a little bit, and they know that their critique and their logic and their sense has all been addressed. Yeah. And they start to be able to use those hard forms of knowing in tandem with their other crucial forms of human knowing, intuition, knowing of the heart, yeah. the profound importance of direct knowing or ultimate mystical knowing. You know, yeah. People start to integrate our very many forms of human knowing. Once they know, having been raised in a very scientifically oriented society, that yes, there is absolute, you know, it's not my opinion. Yeah, right. There is a very strong body of science. That Backing now, <laughs> us, yeah. Right. yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, and especially for somebody that's always kind of felt that, sensed that, that I can even that I can connect to it and I feel that support, mm -hmm. but then to kind of sometimes think, am I nuts? I mean, are people, do people think I'm nuts because I can refer to my, uh, to a higher power that I believe is guiding me? You know, that th doubt creates probably confusion for most of us. And there's such joy in having what you've just expressed validated. You know, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't see science as validating spirituality, but I see it as holding a mirror, as you've yeah. just said, to what we already knew in our heart. Right, right. And there's a great delight I see in people when the knowing of the heart is mirrored with the knowing of what I might call scientific witness, mm -hmm. the collective witness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one person can stand up in a house of meeting, speak in the first person and give witness yeah. and we know it and feel it. Yeah. Science listens to a chorus of people, a study sample, mm -hmm. you know, an N a of a thousand, set. a yeah. data set. And that is really collective witness. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is, isn't mm -hmm. it? And mm -hmm. then it, and then you can still, and then you can still feel a witness of a scientific witness. Yes. Isn't that amazing? Like, yes. it's like, yeah, okay. 
And you don't always need the scientific witness, but sometimes you feel like you're fighting against it or your argument isn't as loud as the argument of science. I think that's very, very true. I have heard so many people echo that understanding that here I've always had a spiritual heart. Here I've sensed this was Mm -hmm. true. I know there's something more. And yet I have felt so invalidated, I hear people say. In every city, Seattle, Houston, New York, I feel so invalidated for my direct heart knowing. To have a science that says this is valid, this is real, knowing of the heart actually is the greatest source mm-hmm. of flourishing. Yeah. And don't you think maybe it's time, too, that we also don't have to differentiate necessarily the different approaches to this uh, higher transcendent power? Like, now I can enjoy a Muslim's view and understand their connection to their God and a Buddhist. And, I mean, how powerful if we could have dialogue where we could share these ideas with each other, where we could actually not, I mean, just commune. There is absolutely a universal spirituality. It is in and through every single one of us, this capacity. And to be able to hear that deep universal spirituality in the voice of a sister or brother from another faith tradition, from the other side of the earth, one that I may have never encountered before. Or even understand at all. Now, I would say that is actually reflective of the greatest educational opportunity which is to say perhaps an educational crisis of our time, that we are not yet as a society spiritually multilingual. You know, it Mm -hmm. is very important to embrace one's own faith tradition, one's own spiritual path, and at the same time hear the universal voice of spirit in the language and symbol and ritual of another. I love that. That can be taught. Yeah. And in fact, by the time a child is six, if that's not taught, Mazar and Banaji and her team at Harvard found that a child is more likely to think their name for the higher power is more real than that of a it. family of another faith tradition at age six. Interesting. And even more likely to share their school lunch with a child who uses the same name for the higher power. Really? So we've got to teach yeah. spiritual multilingualism young because we have a world at war because we can't agree on the name yeah, of the higher power. That's right. The cost could not be higher. Thus the need for the spiritual child, the new science on parenting for health and lifelong thriving. We need – that's how we do it. We've, we've got to, I guess, make it a major part of our, um, of our educational process is to make sure we're teaching that. And here at BYU, you do that. Yeah. I, have, I have to say, in addition to being a center for spirituality and psychology, you are a center for interfaith discussion and yeah. welcoming people of all religious traditions. You really are a leader in yeah. that respect. I don't, I don't, doesn't that mm. – to me, it's beautiful too just because uh, I, I'm changed. Just the other day, we had the Archbishop of Philadelphia and he spoke here and I got to hear him witness – his his Catholic view of God and deity and our role as humans, as children of God, in a room full of probably 8,000 Mormons. And beautiful. had a most beautiful spirit there and a standing ovation, and it was incredible. And I sat there and I thought, this is so right. This is so right. Beautiful. Just keep bringing more people in and understanding more. We don't need to divide anymore, do we? And the standing ovation, a it celebration. Oh, it was incredible. A celebration of the common love of God. That's right. right. And this idea that we need to we need to change the world by being by seeing the brother in each of us. 
And how wonderful that you're at the cutting edge of that here. That's powerful. Thank you. And um, let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Lisa Miller, author of the book, The Spiritual Child, The New Science on Parenting for Health and Lifelong Thriving. Also, go to our website, Lisa Miller, Ph.D., and you can learn everything you need to know. Everything you need to know about her, about her work. Uh, We'll come back. More with Dr. Lisa Miller in just a minute. Stick with us, folks. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. So, so honored, again, to have Dr. Lisa Miller with us. Uh, She is the author of the book, The Spiritual Child, Educating the Head and the Heart. Um, She's teaching us – oh, actually, the title of the book is The Spiritual Child, The New Science on Parenting for Health and Lifelong Thriving. And seriously, I just love having you here, Lisa. It's You're, wonderful to it's be incredible. here with you, Matt. You are as deep a soul as well, I have found on thank Earth. You, you are well, a beautiful soul. Thank you. And I I just feel like I know you from yes. before, yes. Or from wherever. Um, talk to me because you make a really big point that we have to educate the world. The spiritual side of us is natural. It's who we are. We are spiritual beings having a human experience, not human beings having a spiritual experience. Yes. Teilhard de Chardin's quote, I think his name. But it talked to me. We have to educate our children at a young age about this spirituality or apparently they lose it. It's really perhaps our greatest educational crisis and also, of course, our greatest educational opportunity yeah, yeah. to start to embrace natural spirituality in the child. Day one kindergarten, even before Hmm. preschool, as parents, but also as educational institutions. We did a study. We looked at China, India, and the United States. And in every other country, the more educated that we become, the number of years in school with each successive year, we become more spiritually aware in China, in India, but only in this country is education inversely associated with spirituality. Yes. We become more hard hearted. Sadly. More yeah, more yeah, more uh, I guess intellectual. And less able to perceive uh-huh. into the spiritual we reality. We lose the eyes to see. We lose the eyes to see, the heart to know, mm-hmm. and the will for spiritual activism. Are these other countries, China and India, are they teaching spiritual things in their classroom? So that's the very interesting point. I think in other countries, even when explicit expression of religion is forbidden, there is still in the daily course a spiritual awareness Uh as understood in deep universal ways. Interesting. For instance, we looked around the world and found there were five, what you might even call as Phenotypes uh-huh. in our very wiring, five phenotypes of innate spirituality. One was a perception of love as a powerful transforming force. Love is not just an emotion like happiness, it is like gravity or magnetism. It moves things. Mm. Everyone on earth gets that. Everyone. Everyone. Universal. Universal. And yet, if we look country to country, it is actually higher in China than in the United States. The concept of getting love as a power love is, is a power. lower in the United States than in China. Where explicit expression of religion wow. is not always allowed, right? So this is our birthright. This is who we are. And it's at play 
unless we silence the spiritual life. And I think in a very unfortunate way, we have muted the spiritual awareness of our children through an implicitly materialist education. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's sell books. Let's make more money. Let's drive this economy. And your children are so often viewed as part of the economy. Yeah, right. You know, pick up and drop off. How was the math test? Did you win today? You know, how was the production at at school today? Transaction. Yeah. Just. Versus you are such a ray of light. uh I am so happy to see you. You seem happy. Tell me about what made you happy today. I'm so blessed to be your parent. Hello. Welcome home. Yeah. Another thing we see around the world is an understanding of our oneness, our interconnectedness. Again, China, India, everyone gets a basic perception of our interconnectedness and oneness. And yet in this country, we are blinded by separateness. Yeah, divisiveness. Divisiveness. I mean, you see it in the political world. And yet they could talk about, they they could even be from a religious kind of focused political party. And yet we see division, not... Unity. We We see how we're separate, not whole. So I think we can invite everyone into a discussion of universal spirituality where everyone's entitled to speak in the first person in their own language, their own tradition. And we can hear each other through the first person Mm -hmm. right into their soul, what they're really saying and know it with our own heart. And that divisiveness is more here than in any of these other countries you studied. And part of, I think, the opportunity is in the schools Mm -hmm. to have a respect for core spirituality. Part of it is our opportunity, of course, as parents. Yeah, right, right. right. And when we've looked at the data, there is nothing more powerful than a parent sharing his or her own spiritual life with their child. The child is absolutely riveted. And that includes the hard times. You know, mommy was in a time of struggle and darkness. And I opened my heart and I prayed and I felt that great light. I felt the buoyed up love of God. I felt the connection with whatever language might be mm-hmm. in that home. Right, you know, right. Um, even if it's life itself yeah, or the universe. Yeah, just like the powers. Yeah, whatever. Mother nature, whatever your source is. Yeah. Uh, loving, guiding, transcendent. I love Ultimate that. presence. So, and we can teach that by modeling it, talking about it, showing it, using that voice. Running the narrative on our own inner mm-hmm. life. If we say, I'm going to pray now, would you like to sit by my side? Or I'm going to meditate. Do you want to be here? Do you want to finish my prayer? Is there something you'd like to read to the family? Interesting. Then it's that beautiful interweave that in the bonds of our human love is the great transcendent presence. What I might call in the spiritual child, the field of love, that interweaving of the great sacred presence through the ultimate commitment and love of family. Mm. Now, the LDS community gets that. Yeah. Yeah. We're big into that, aren't we? Family and the kind of the connectivity of generations, which is why genealogy is such kind of a spiritual pursuit. And family is a sacred highest ultimate. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. This is our ultimate goal. And, and you're saying that really is that's a perfect idyllic, I guess, incubator for a spiritual being. The science says that, you know, it's not enough to pick up a book, any good book yeah, at 20. Right. It's the lived spiritual relationship of parent and child that fosters the core of the child. And by the age of six. By the age of six, it's underway. But of mm-hmm. course, as we know, yeah, through we, childhood and puberty, yeah. It is that bond of the family, you know, the love of the parent Mm -hmm. that is a taste of the sacred divine love. And in fact, I've had students say, you know, I grew up in the former Soviet Union. My father never spoke about religion. We were afraid we'd be persecuted. I never heard the word spirituality. But you know what? 
I am deeply spiritual. I am. Interesting. Do you know why? Because my father loved me. I mean, he loved me. And when I think about God, it's all wrapped up in the taste of my yeah. father's love. Isn't that it? It is. Yeah. That's where it can be unspoken because it's still felt. And it is that love of a parent is the sacred presence. Uh And the data now holds a mirror to that. The data says that if spiritual life comes through your mother, it is 80% protective against depression. If spiritual life comes through your mother and your grandmother, now three generations. Okay, so spiritual life meaning? A personal relationship with the higher power. With the higher power. And so if grandma has it and mom has it and you have it. Three generations. Yeah. I am 90% less likely to have severe recurrent major depression. Unbelievable. There is nothing as powerful as spiritual life as passed through the generations. When the torch is passed from grandma Hmm. to mom to child. It's the inoculator. Yes. To humanity. Yes. That is powerful. Is it it, uh, spirituality or religiosity? Well, that's a very good point. So for 66% of people in the United States, a deep, authentic spiritual life is held in their faith tradition. Right. And for about 30%, spiritual life exists outside of faith tradition. They'll say in nature, in my relationship Mm -hmm. with my family, I feel spiritual life. And there's a few number of folks who feel religious, but not spiritual. They'll say, it is my culture, it is my heritage. So there is in every single one of us an innate capacity for spirituality, a deep compass, an endowment to feel the transcendent, to see into the spiritual bedrock, to perceive. That is in us. But the extent to which that's cultivated and how is about two-thirds an embrace very often of religion and faith tradition. Now, the only time people get in trouble, we've seen statistically, is when we have a strong adherence to creed absent the spiritual heart. Right. And that wreaks havoc both on the individual and the collective. So if all of a sudden you are seemingly practicing or using religion, but not having the the connection and the heart, the love. The love. And then you're then it's a facade. And then we don't see the benefits that otherwise yeah. are derived. So mm-hmm. it, it actually, actually might induce stress, it seems like, because you're a counterfeit. Well, and when teens find themselves in challenging and questionable situations with alcohol, with sex, they absent the spiritual connection actually are not able to cope. Oh, wow. So that rigid adherence to creed minus the deep felt spirituality actually Uh is associated with having crossed the line difficulty with substances and difficulty handling intricate situations. So it really is, uh, it's an advantage in almost every, I guess, in every way to, to at least talk about what you believe. And for the parent to live it and show it. You know, uh-huh. um, if I get in a little tiff with the woman at the checkout counter, awkward as it feels, I need to go back with my kid and by my it, side yeah. and apologize yeah. and say, I'm sorry to you. And then also, I'm sorry to God. Yeah. Because today was a gift and I, I spoiled a little bit of today. I'd like to repair this, renew it, and rejuvenate oh, it. And when we repair things with one another mm-hmm. and with loving higher power, there's a rejuvenation taught to the child, a possibility, and an awareness that our every act is mm-hmm. of significance. The spiritual clock always runs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess connect all goodness. I mean, I mean, this to me, seems to me our ability to forgive somebody, our ability to let go of our past, our ability to overcome our fears. There's all of these, our shames, our guilts, they're all connected to the spiritual self. 
And as a parent, we can be honest and open and say, you know, I felt guilty. I felt shameful that I did this. And I am going to apologize and try to repair it in Mm -hmm. my action. And would you sit by my side while I try to repair it and replenish us as family with God? Yeah, yeah. That is the greatest gift we can give our children. And it requires a humility on our part and openness and transparency on our part. And yet science says when we share of our spiritual heart with our children. It is the most generous and important contribution we can make to their inner life and even their outward path. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess when you think about it, even maybe more important than getting them into the best school. Oh, we stand on our head with parents, you know, extracurricular travel, soccer, three tutors, learn this instrument and then this one too. And yet the science says there's nothing as profoundly helpful to the child as a core inner heart, a Mm -hmm. spiritual inner life, even in terms of outward success. Unbelievable. If you look at college freshman GPA, there's four practices in living that predict GPA above and beyond IQ. You got to eat breakfast. You got to get your sleep. Keep a planner so you show up. And spiritual reading and reflection is directly reflected in GPA. If you've had a prayer and read your scriptures that... You have a bigger world and you see things in proportion and you're buoyed up by a path that is a true authentic path of calling and purpose. That's beautiful. You know, any given day, if I'm here for myself or if I'm here to shine as Mm -hmm. an individual, then, okay, today's great. I got an A on the math test, but tomorrow's not great because I got a C. If I'm here as a soul on earth, if you've taught me as my parent that I'm here as a soul on earth, then when today I got a C, that's just noise amongst a much bigger trajectory of meaning and purpose Mm -hmm. and contribution. I'm here as a soul on earth to give. That's right. I'm here to give. And and then we turn outward. Then the the, the arrows aren't about us anymore. They're not turned into us. Now that I know what I know, I turn them up to my God, my deity, and then I turn them out to my brothers and sisters. And that's a much bigger life. And that's therapy, right? I mean, that's healthy. That's just cathartic. Then it's not about me. And, you know, we've put people in an MRI, the very same nice person, and had them tell us two stories. One is a story of stress. One is a story of their sacred relationship. When we hear the young person, 18 through 25, college student, New Haven, tell us a story about stress. It is never about the time I climbed Everest or the time I grappled (laughs) with, you know, Mandarin or it is a story about I've got to get into this school. I've got to get this job. I've got to have this happen for me. And that lights up in the MRI, the same part of the brain associated with craving and drug addicts. Oh, wow. Our chronic stress in our culture is an attachment. It is in a craving stance. Yeah, yeah. And it has to do with the self-focus, the atomistic yeah. self, and hot pursuit of what we think in an ego-based level we want. Now, right. take that same person, because we're all good at yeah, heart. Yeah, yeah. Put the hand on the gear shift. Shift it from the stress and craving story to the spiritual narrative. And these stories, of course are beautiful. Uh I was in a dark time of doubt and I opened my heart and I felt the great presence of God. I felt the love. I felt the brightness and I knew things were as they were meant to be. Or I returned home from college to my faith tradition, sat by my family's side. And as we said the prayers with which I'd grown up, I felt this illumination. I felt the presence, the loving presence. And I knew life was as it should be. That's a different story. Same kid. Now, when that college student shifts the narrative to the spiritual story, no more craving brain. And what lights up instead are the regions of perception. The life 
that we see becomes bigger and fuller. Yes. Emotional perception. Yeah. Life has more pixels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, greater definition. And you see into reality. Yeah. You open greater your, movement. Yeah, you're less cornered. And, There's more opportunity. And you see life as it really is yeah. more yeah. than Abundant. before. Abundant. That's what uh, Christ said. I, I am here to give you life more abundantly. Beautiful. That's a choice of how we use our inner life. Isn't that amazing? Same kid. Wow. And the brain reflects it. Yeah. Well, and again, back, and an addiction, it's the, it would be the source of the addiction too, right? Just this, the way we think, the way we perceive. Right. And of course, addiction to substance, but yeah. addiction to having. It's the golden calf, uh-huh. right? right? right, right. Got to have this, got to have that. Whether it's money or this job or this something else. Yeah. And that is a narrowing field. It gives us a smaller life. Yeah. And the lack of attachment, the surrender, and the connection with the ultimate reality opens up a much more abundant life. You're amazing. Dr. Lisa Miller, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. Seriously, this is is my favorite show ever. This is a great (laughs) honor and joy and deeply meaningful to me. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. And I wish you all the success in your speaking here at BYU and life, of course. I look forward to speaking today. You're going to be great. And I'm going to go start directly teaching my children as much as I can. You've motivated me. I bet they've already seen a lot through you, Matt. They have. We, we, we have a really a f- thing I affectionately call the prayer fight every night at my house because mm-hmm. we have a family prayer, but the kids are like not wanting to. So it always it kind of starts with a fight and then it turns into a spiritual moment. Beautiful. Beautiful, Beautiful the prayer fight. Uh, Dr. Lisa Miller is her name. The book is called The Spiritual Child, The New Science on Parenting for Health and Lifelong Thriving. Go to lisamillerphd.com to get more information about that and everything she does. She's a gift to the world. Thanks again, Lisa. It's a joy. Thank you. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll continue uh, just this hour of the Matt Townsend Show. I don't know that you can get more profound than what we've just been through, but uh, we'll see if we can elevate your life even further. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, what a day. What a show. I'm telling you, Lisa Miller, interesting stuff when you think about the power of spirit. We know it's a part of our life somehow. And again, let me just challenge you as your coach. Go out there and you don't always have to tie it to religion, but tie it to that feeling of peace that can come by being connected to this higher purpose, this higher power and, uh, and make it a part of your life, as Dr. Miller taught, taught us. Um, also, great uh, first hour. If you missed the first hour, we had a wonderful interview with Kalani Sataki, BYU's head football coach, and Tom Holmo, the athletic director. And uh, we appreciate uh, them being with us. We want to remind you, too, at the end of today's show, in just a few minutes, uh, BYU Media and BYU Broadcasting is going to be doing a state of the program where they're going to, uh, you know, basically go over the entire BYU football program. Uh, Kalani Sataki, again, will be there and other guests. So pay attention to that. That's at the top of this hour. And, of course, as we always like to leave you, we want to do it with a hero story. Uh, Today's hero is an 18-year-old Carlos Rodriguez uh, from Agua Dulce, California. And he... Um, Listen to this. A California teen hailed as a hero for helping cops find a man who kidnapped a toddler. 
The peace of the rural California town Agua Dulce was violently broken when a two-year-old girl was kidnapped at knife point from her grandfather's lap. Oscar Mendez was at his home with his granddaughter when a man came through the open door wielding a large kitchen knife. The man said he was taking the baby, grabbed the child, and then ran off and attempted to stab the grandfather. Well, uh, Mendez ran next door to the neighbor's house to look for help, and when Carlos Rodriguez jumped into action, Rodriguez called 911, gave police a description of the kidnapper, staying on the phone with the police the whole time, and another neighbor uh, helped look for the child, but eventually it was found by the police uh, safe and unharmed in the kidnapper's trailer. So if it wasn't for that boy, the sheriff's department... Uh, that baby probably would have been lost. So 18-year-old Carlos Rodriguez, you are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. That is the show, my friends. We are going to uh, send you away where you can now get ready to learn all about the state of BYU football program. Interesting stuff coming up, folks. Stick with us. We'll be back tomorrow. More ideas to help you live longer and love stronger. Make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow.